this is our final uh, sermon in our Roman series for this year. Uh, so we'll end in chapter 7 and then hopefully we'll pick up again uh, next year as we do the second half of uh, the book of Romans. So we'll start a new series actually next week. Uh, just a reminder, there is a, there is a little uh, insert in your bulletins today, those of you who are regulars at Grace Point, which is uh, a little note on what to bring uh, to the church weekend away in three weeks. Uh, so you might want to actually have a look at that. Uh, that will actually be printed again next week. Uh, if you haven't registered for church camp, uh, let me actually encourage you to do that. Uh, it is one of the few opportunities we have to get away together. Uh, one of the few opportunities, if you're a family, that your children will get to know the wider church as well. Uh, and so uh, that's important. Also a reminder that on the weekend of church camp, uh, Sunday worship is actually at Golson Gorge. And so uh, if you are planning on coming for Sunday worship, you will need to register as well. The campsite will actually need to know to cater for lunch, uh, but there will be no services here. They will all actually be at the campsite at Golson Gorge. So we thought we'd let you know, uh, and it's important for you to be aware of that. Uh, let me actually pray for us. Gracious God, we do thank you that you reveal and you speak in and through your word. We want to ask this uh, Sunday morning, that you might be so, so gracious as to help us understand this uh, passage in the Bible, uh, help us not just understand it, but also bring it to bear on our hearts uh, so that we might know how to apply it. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the great myths is that if you're a Christian, you'll never struggle with sin. That's one of the great myths. Uh, and, and, and surprisingly, that is also the expectations from the people around us, you know, in the workplace, whether you have friends who are religious or who are not religious, the expectation is that if you're a Christian, you won't sin or you won't ever do anything wrong. You won't fail. You won't disappoint anyone. You'll meet the expectations to be perfect. Now, I'm sure you've had the experience where someone has actually said to you, hey, you know, you're a Christian. Why are you like that? Uh, Christian people shouldn't speak or behave like that. And I want to say to you, the expectation is right. But the expectation that you will never fail or disappoint uh, or do anything wrong or stuff up or sin, well, that expectation is wrong. Uh, like I said, one of the great myths is that if you are a Christian, you won't struggle with sin. You won't fail. And we know that is simply untrue. And we know it's untrue because we practice it in our services each week. When we come to worship, what's one of the first things we do? We confess our sin. The Bible never teaches that you will never fail. The Bible doesn't teach that. Uh, you read in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, if we claim to be without fault, we deceive ourselves. People who say they do nothing wrong are deceivers, and the truth is not in us. Now, here in Romans chapter 7, verse 14 to verse 25, we're looking at this last uh, part uh, of Romans 7. What you have is a description of Paul's struggle with sin and his failure in the Christian life. Did you hear that? He struggled with sin and his failure in the Christian life. And, and I suspect uh, this is a passage that many of us here will resonate with. He knows what he should be doing, what God expects of him, but he does the opposite. Okay? Verse 18 to verse 19. In your Bibles, if you have a look with me, uh, verse 18 to verse 19 is effectively a summary of this struggle in Paul's life. And so we read, this is how he feels, I have a desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep doing. And as we look at Paul's struggle with sin in his life, hopefully it'll help us in our struggles as well. Uh, I'm going to look at these verses under three headings. It's there in your, in your outline. Uh, it's basically Paul's feeling of being, feelings of divided, 
uh, feelings of despair and then knowing deliverance. Divided despair, deliverance. Okay? So that's what we're going to do this morning. Now, let me remind you where we are in chapter 7. I, I, I hope Clement last week, he covered this while I was away because I was at Lidcombe. But there is a refrain that goes through ch- chapter 7. Okay, So this is the refrain that goes through chapter 7. You hear the word, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, don't you? So if you read uh, chapter 7, that's a constant refrain. Now, one of the things I said, because I wasn't preaching here last week. I was preaching at our Lidcombe campus. And one of the things I said to them is that this idea of living under the law is not necessarily a religious thing. Everyone lives under some law in life, some law that makes demands on them, that places expectations on them, uh, that says you must achieve this or you are a failure in life. And so all of us know what it's like to live under some law in life that we're expected to meet, to fulfill, to achieve, to satisfy. And so, you know, the law of academic achievement actually says, ETA of 99.5 to get into med. Or ETA, that's at, 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 uh, I think, uh, UCID. Or law, right? To get into UCID law, it's uh, the the law of academic achievement says 98 at University of Sydney. So you study hard to meet its standards. Some will fail, others will pass or achieve it, okay? Uh, There are laws in your workplace, or laws in your workplace that determine... Who gets promoted? Who meets the cut? Who performs? Who gets the bigger bonus? Who's valued? Who's able to satisfy the demands of the laws of productivity? Some will fail. Some will achieve it. There are also laws for some of you here who are married that are spoken and unspoken. Expectations that we place on the other. Standards we expect the other to actually meet. Sometimes they meet those standards. Sometimes they will fail. And so in every sphere of life, there is a standard or law that you and I are expected to fulfill, to satisfy, that makes demands of us, that we strive to achieve, that says, unless you meet this standard, unless you achieve what is demanded of you, you are a failure in life. The law of career success, the law of social standing, the law of popularity, the law of fashion and beauty, the law of academic achievement, the law of financial security, the law of friendship. You know, it's endless and it's exhausting. And so I don't know whether you realize this, but when you look at your life and my life and the life of people all around you, the reason why you are always mentally uh, and emotionally and physically exhausted is because you're probably living under some rule of law in life that's crushing you. That's making demands of you. And sometimes you feel crushed and despairing because you fail to meet those expectations. And so the first thing I want to say is that everyone here, whether you are religious or not religious, Christian or not, you're living under some law in life that you're expected to meet, to fulfill, to satisfy, to achieve. Now, that's not just true of life. It's also true of God's law, God's expectations of us. Best practice when it comes to God's world. Okay, uh, because this is the Christian rationale. It's fair to assume if that if there are laws, there is a lawmaker, there is a best practice in life, just as there's a best practice in every sphere of life. It's fair to assume if there was a God who was creator and designer, he would have laws in place, a design in place showing us how we can actually flourish and thrive in his world, a clear path to live so we thrive in his world, best practice in life so we flourish expectations of us. Laws of right and wrong, laws of good and bad that binds men and women in every culture and language, written not just in our hearts in the form of conscience, but also revealed in his word. Laws that bind us, laws that make demand of us, laws that are expected of us. 
Now, if you were here last week, Clement was preaching, and he would have told you, okay, I'm sure he would have told you this, he would have told you that no one can live or fulfill the demands of God's law. No one can, because no one's perfect. And the good news is that Jesus has freed us from the demands and consequences of the law. Our death with Jesus, because we're joined with him in his death, we receive all the benefits of his work. Everything that is good of his becomes ours. His beauty becomes ours. His morality becomes ours. His obedience becomes ours. His righteousness becomes ours. And everything of ours that is nasty and sinful becomes his. Our judgment becomes his judgment. Uh, Our death becomes his death. He takes it all on himself, crushed in our place. That's why Jesus died. And so the good news is that we have in Jesus someone who meets the demands of the law and the consequences of failing the law. His beauty becomes yours, and you have been released from the demands and consequences of the law. Your sin and your judgment becomes his, and you have been released from the demands and consequences of the law. Now, that's the good news, okay? Paul says you've been freed from living under law. Christian people don't live under law, okay? Right? So this is the difference I want to say to you as we start. Christianity never teaches law-keeping to be saved. Religion says keep the law to be saved. Christianity never teaches that. In fact, Christianity actually teaches the very opposite. Christianity says Jesus has freed you from the demands and consequences of the law. Trust him. That's the difference between religion and Christianity. And that's the good news. And Paul will actually, Paul says that in chapter 7. And then in verse 7 to verse 13, just before we come to our passage, Jesus, uh, Paul says the law is good, right, because it shows up our failure. When you know best practice, you know where you fall short. That's how the law functions, right? Now, come with me to verse 14 to verse 20 now, because in light of the law and the demands placed on him, Uh, In light of uh, being freed from the law, Paul says, I feel divided, right? Paul's feeling divided. Now, why? Because when he looks at his life, when he looks at his Christian life, he says, yeah, I'm joined to Jesus in his death and resurrection. I know forgiveness. I've been released from the demands of the law, but I'm still struggling with sin in my life. I'm still struggling to do what is right, what is good. Obeying God is still a challenge, Has it ever occurred to you that Christian life is an ongoing struggle with sin? It's an ongoing struggle to do what is good and right. And so look at what he says, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual. It's good. But I am unspiritual. The word there is fleshly. I am of the flesh. Soul as a slave to sin. Another version says, we know the law is spiritual, but I am made out of flesh. I'm human. Soul into the power of sin. Now, what does Paul mean that? What does Paul mean by that? He feels a tension, a struggle. He knows the law is good. What God asks of him is a good thing. But then he says, I'm weak. I struggle to do that, to obey. Look what Paul uh, says, how he describes this tension. So in your Bibles, notice verse 15. What I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. What I hate, I do. Verse 18, I have a desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Verse 19, I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep doing. Okay? So notice there's a struggle, right? Why is there a struggle if you've been released from the demands and consequences of the law? 
If Jesus has freed you from the demands and consequences of the law, why is there a struggle? Well, it's there in verse 14. Notice Paul is sold as a slave to sin. Uh, Now, there are hints of what that means in our passage. Uh, It's there, verse 17, look it with me. It is sin living in me. Verse 18, my sinful nature. Verse 20, again, sin living in me that does it. Now, it's Paul's way of saying that though he has been saved, by nature he's still fallen. He's forgiven, but he's still a fallen creature with a propensity to sin. Now, the Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, has a phrase that describes the Christian. It's a good phrase to remember. Uh, It's a phrase that describes the Christian. I'm not going to give you the Latin phrase, but it's basically simultaneously saint and sinner. Right? Simultaneously saint and sinner. Justified and sinner. Forgiven and transgressor. Righteous and lawbreaker. And so here's the tension. Because of Jesus, you are saved, you are forgiven, clothed in his righteousness and beauty, but you are also a sinner, a transgressor, a lawbreaker, because you are fallen. The grace of the gospel covers you. The benefits of Jesus are yours. But in the present, you are fallen. In the present, you are still weak and broken. Now, Paul has alluded to this, you know, this Christian struggle. He's alluded to it in chapter 6 as well. Because in chapter 6, Paul has said, you have been joined with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, right? Jesus has met the demands of the law and the consequences of the law for you. His beauty, his obedience, his morality becomes yours, right? And everything ugly of yours has become his. That's why he dies and he was crushed and judged in your place. And so, Uh, You've been released, effectively, from the demands and consequences of the law. Now, very quickly, if you quickly go back to chapter 6, just flick your Bibles two chapters back. uh, We read, you have been released from the demands and consequences of the law, verse 6 to verse 7. It says, verse 6 to verse 7 of chapter 6, if you've died and rose with Jesus, it says, you're no longer a slave to sin. You've been set free from sin. Now, you read those verses, and it's exciting, isn't it? Because you, you sort of go, wow. No longer struggles, no, lo- no longer ha- having to struggle in life. But if that were true, verse 11 to verse 14 would not be necessary. And so in your Bibles, come down to verse 11 to verse 14 in chapter 6. Paul says, we're no longer slaves to sin, set free from sin. But then he also goes on to say, so fight sin in your life. The Christian life is not one of passivity, but active resistance, right? Not passivity, but active resistance. Have a look at verse 11 to verse 14. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Live up to what God has done for you. Offer every part of to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin is no longer your master because you're not under law but under grace. And so Paul says, hey, you join with Jesus. You have all the riches, right? You have all the benefits, forgiven. But he says, keep fighting sin. Don't let sin get the better of you. And so you begin to realize there's a tension, isn't there? If you join with Jesus, you share all the benefits of his death and resurrection. But your body is simply not there. In, you know, in, in its resurrected state. There's still brokenness. There's still 
sin. Uh, there's still indwelling uh, brokenness and weakness. In fact, later in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, Paul will speak of your body and my body as groaning because we groan, because we're weak, we fail. And so Paul actually feels divided in his Christian life. What he knows to be good and true and what he actually does are actually intention. Sometimes he fails to do what is good and true. Uh, look again at how Paul describes this tension. Come back to chapter 7. This is the ongoing battle. Verse 15, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. Verse 18, I have a desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Verse 19, I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. And so what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, although I am saved, although Jesus has saved me, my body is fallen, which is why I struggle with sin. Which is why I struggle to be obedient, to obey God's commands, to do what is right. I struggle to live God's way, even as a Christian. And so this is the painful reality Paul is highlighting, not just for himself, but for us. Your body in life has not caught up with who you are in Jesus. And so, so understand this, right? You have a new identity, forgiven, beautiful in Jesus, clothed in his righteousness. You belong to Jesus, married to Jesus. But when you look at your life, what do you see? It's a mess. So many areas that are ugly, that are immoral, that are shameful, that make you feel guilty, that you struggle with. Why? Because you are still flesh. The old nature is still there, still impaired with sin. And so here's the thing. I love my new identity in Jesus but I hate what I see in my life. You feel that tension? Because, you know, I, I know my identity in Jesus, but when I look at my life, it just doesn't look like that, does it? I'm forgiven, but I'm still sinful and I hate it. That's the difference between someone uh, whom the Bible says has been born again, who has the Spirit, and someone who has not been born again. And that's why I got Juliana over there to read chapter 8, verse 5 to verse 7. So you move for one chapter, look at verse 5 to verse 7, it says... Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, right? It does not submit to God's law, neither can it do so. See, you aren't a Christian if you aren't bothered by your sin. You aren't a Christian if sin doesn't repulse you. You aren't a Christian if you don't feel the daily tension of who you are in Jesus and what you fail to be each day. Did you hear that? Let me say that again. You can be coming to church here every Sunday, but you aren't a Christian if you don't feel the daily tension of who you are in Jesus and what you fail to be each day. That's why I've said repeatedly, you know, the Christian life uh, is a dance. It's a movement of daily repentance and faith. Spiritual growth is marked by repentance and faith. Daily. Maturity is marked by repentance and faith. The recognition that my sins are many. I discover them more and more and more with each passing day, with each passing month, with each passing year. I discover more and more of what I hate in myself in light of God's word, where I fail, what I should be and what I'm not. The Christian life, right, the maturity is discovering that my sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. That's the path of maturity in the Christian life. That's the mark of maturity. 
Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 6, verse 5 says, I've got it there in your outlines, during our earthly lives, this corruption of nature remains in those who are regenerated, those who are saved. The corruption of nature remains in the Christian, right? And so you might be a Christian, but indwelling sin remains. Sin is pardoned and forgiven, but indwelling sin remains. And that's the reason why you feel divided. We're both simultaneously saint and sinner. Now, if you understand what Paul is saying rightly, then we are not allowed to be triumphalistic in the Christian life. Right To think, I no longer sin, I'm sinless, I've got nothing to repent of, I have no issues, everyone else does. No, 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 that's triumphalistic. That's a problem with that. But then we're also not allowed to minimize our sin, right? You're still a sinner, which means that you need to be watchful. There are things in your life you need to guard against. You need to be watchful of indwelling sin. The flesh is always looking for an opportunity to sin, and so you need to guard your heart. Because if you understand this passage rightly, you would also be much more understanding to the faults of others around you, to the sin of others around you. You would be more compassionate to the failure of others around you, less judgmental towards them, because they too are like you. They too struggle with indwelling sin, with the flesh, with their sinful nature. Paul feels divided. But notice there's a second thing, verse 21 to verse 24. Have a look with me. Have a look at verse 24 in particular. He feels despair. Right? Verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Now, I want to say to you, Paul absolutely hates this tension in his life. Uh, The presence of ongoing sin in his life, the struggle. And what makes it awful is that it is within us. Now, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Paul says when he sins, it's not someone else's fault. It's his fault, the evil within, his sinful nature within. Now, I find this extremely provocative because you think with me for a moment, we live in a world where we are always blaming others, right, for our bad behavior, a world where we we, uh, make excuses for our bad behavior. It's my family upbringing, right? It's my circumstances, It's because my spouse didn't meet my expectations or failed me. It's my mental health. It's because I'm born in a minority group. It's because I'm oppressed. It's because my needs weren't met. My sin is caused by others or the circumstances. That's how a lot of people operate in life. Well, the Bible actually says the problem is not out there. It's in here. Indwelling sin, right? In, In us, your sinful nature. What's the problem with the world? I am the problem with the world. You're not the problem. I am. And so what actually happens in life is the circumstances in our lives are only showing up what's already there in your heart. The situation is just uh, giving what's in your heart an opportunity to express itself in your words, in your action, in your anger. It actually reveals indwelling sin in your heart. You know, sometimes when I have counseled in the past married couples, I've said to them, you can never blame the other person for your bad behavior or your bad words or your hurtful words. You can't blame the other person. Yeah, of course, they failed to meet your expectations, but you can't blame them for your bad behavior or nasty words, right? I've said to them, um, 
you can't take responsibility for what your spouse does. But you have to own your behavior and your words, which means learn to own your sin. Don't blame other people, right? They're not the reason why you sin. Their sin just gave your sin an occasion to express itself. It was already there. You're not as good as you think you are. The posture of the Christian is always one of humility. Humility. Because if you are a Christian, you are sober enough to recognize that you are not a good person. Right? The great myth is that Christianity is for good people. Ah, that's nonsense. That's a myth. No. Christianity is for people who recognize they are not good. Which is why they need saving. Okay? Christianity is not for people who think they're good enough to be saved. That's religion. Right? Religion says you, you can be good enough to save yourself. That's not Christianity. Christianity is for people who know they are not good and they can't save themselves, who recognize they need a savior, they need help. That's why in Christianity, salvation never comes through your morality, your effort, your good work. Salvation never comes through law-keeping. Salvation comes through Jesus. His effort, his work, his morality, his obedience, what he does for you. And all you're called to do is trust his work for you. That's the difference between religion and Christianity. Paul feels despair because of this struggle within him, and he describes it as a war that's taking place, right? A struggle. Look at verse 21 and verse 23. He says, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Notice how he describes his struggle. Evil is right there with me. And so here's the thing, right? We live our lives guarding against wickedness and evil out there. If you're a parent... You're trying to keep it out of your home. You teach your children stranger danger, right? Don't talk to strangers on the street. Don't take lollies from them. Some of you have phones and, and you know, laptops. You've got, uh, you've got software to keep malware and viruses out. Uh, we th- always think the danger is out there, right? Paul says, notice this verse, it's right there with you. You see there? Jeremiah 17, 9, the prophet says, The heart is deceitful above all things. You know the problem? It's your heart. Indwelling sin is present. It's looking for an opportunity to manifest itself in the situations in your life. So here's the tension. Verse 22. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Notice the battleground for godliness or holiness or goodness in the Christian life. Where is it fought? It is first fought in your heart. That's where it's first fought. There is a war that's taking place within. Now, understand this. The Christian man or woman delights in God's law. The Christian man or woman loves God's war and God's, God's word and God's way because you've died, you've risen with Jesus. There are new desires, there are new pursuits, there are new God-glorifying, God-honoring desires. But, you know, alongside that, there is another power at work within trying to actually reclaim its captivity, the law of sin, the sinful nature Indwelling sin. The old nature is trying to claw its way back in our lives. 
And so the Christian life is one of internal conflict. Now, Paul, in the Bible, this is not the only place he speaks of this. He also speaks of this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. Galatians 5, verse 17, uh, Paul speaks the same way. This is what he says. Let me read that for us. For the flesh, the old nature, desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh, the old nature. And then he says they are in conflict with each other. They are in conflict with each other. God, by his spirit, has joined you to Jesus in his death and resurrection. So everything that is of Jesus, his beauty, his morality, his obedience is now yours. Everything of yours, your ugliness, your sin, your judgment, your condemnation is now his. That's the good news. But when you look at your life, it's a mess. So many areas that are ugly. So many areas of morality you struggle with. Things that you are ashamed of, things that you struggle with. Why? You're still flesh. The old nature is there, still impaired because of sin. Struggling to be who you are in Jesus. Now, it's really important that you follow Paul's train of thought, okay? He feels divided. He feels despair. So what does Paul now do? Look at verse 24. What does he do? Verse 24. What a wretched man I am. What must I do to beat sin? What must I do to overcome my struggle with sin? What must I do to win the war? What must I do? He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say, what must I do? No. What does he say? It's so important to get this right. He says, can you see it there? Who will rescue me? He doesn't say, what must I do? He says, who will save me? Who will rescue me? That is the posture of the Christian life. Religion says, you can save yourself. Christianity says, you can't. Which is why the heart cry in Christianity is, who will save me? Okay, uh, The Christian life is one of internal conflict. Sin is ever present in our lives, constant state of war, but we're not without hope. And hope only comes into your life when you recognize you need help. You need saving. Don't know whether you realize this. Salvation is by grace, but so is sanctification. Ongoing growth in the Christian life. Growing in godliness is also by grace. God doesn't just save you and then leave you like an orphan. Work it out for yourself, right? Struggle by yourself. Make, uh, make a success of your Christian life by yourself. No, it doesn't work that way. The God who saves you in Jesus is also the God who now helps you fight sin, who makes provision to enable and empower you to be the man or woman he has made you to be in Jesus. That's the good news. And so have a look at verse 25. Look at what Paul says. Paul says, you can know deliverance. This is where you can find rescue in your war with sin in life. This is, you know, the ones you're struggling with, the ones that cause you despair, the ones that leave you demoralized, that seem so deeply entrenched in your life. Is it possible to win? The answer is yes. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you can be sinless and perfect in life. You can't. But you can grow in your fight against sin in your personal life. And so look at verse 25. Who will rescue me? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, understand this. The struggle is still there. In my mind, I'm a slave to God's law, it says. I delight in it. I want to obey it. But in my sinful nature, I'm a slave to the law of sin. I don't always obey it. 
But thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Jesus who died for you at the cross, who was judged for your sin at the cross, remains for you and with you in your battle with sin in life? If he loved you enough to give you his riches, his goodness, his beauty, his obedience, if he loved you enough to die for all your sins, crushed in your place, condemned in your place, do you really think that he isn't concerned about your struggle with sin in life? As long as you try to live the Christian life in your own strength and power, you will fail. And the last word will actually be despair, and it will crush you. The power to change does not lie within you. It lies outside of you. It has to be given to you. Religion actually says the power to change is within you. So look within. Rise up. Overcome your deficiencies. Be a better person. Work to overcome your failings. That's religion. It's also the way of psychology. Christianity says the power to change, right? The power to be good lies external to you. Look to Jesus and what he's done for you, right? What you cannot do, and then look to Jesus who is able to change you. So the Christian actually says, I want to change, but I can't. I need help. I need Jesus to save me from my life of sin and to save me from my struggle against sin. Did you hear that? I need help, not just to save me from sin, but also from my struggle against sin. And something wonderful happens when we see that we need help in this war that we can't win without his help. Now, that help comes in chapter 8. Unfortunately, we're not doing chapter 8 today. But all the help you need comes in chapter 8. Because Paul will go on to say that as I look to Jesus in my struggle with sin, his spirit will actually enable me in the fight. His spirit will actually empower me to overcome sin. We need his spirit to enable us, not just to desire the right things, We need God's Spirit to also enable our submission and obedience to God's law, God's way. That's God's desire. And so chapter 8, verse 5 to verse 8, very quickly, this is what it actually says. Have a look. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on what the flesh desires. Those who live according accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And then it says, here it is, verse 7. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Which means those who live accordance to the Spirit, those who have the Spirit, they are the ones who will submit to God's law. They can do it. Those who are not in the realm, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. They can't obey God. They won't submit to His law. But those who are in the realm of the Spirit, they do please God. It's Paul's way of saying, you and I, we need God's rescue. Our struggle with sin, we need God's rescue. And rescue comes through Jesus and his indwelling spirit in our lives, enabling us to hate our sin, enabling us to be repulsed by our sin, enabling us to desire what is right and to actually do it. Nike, right? Nike is like religion because Nike says, just do it. Paul says, You can't do it. But God in Jesus by his spirit can enable you to do it. Look to him. And so the Christian life is 
One where you live in continued dependence on Jesus, on His enabling work in your life to help you overcome sin. Now, listen to me very carefully. Like Your struggle with sin is not meant to leave you crushed. It's not meant to cause despair in your life. Uh, your struggle with sin is meant to expose your sinful heart. And then it's meant to drive you to Jesus to seek help so that you cry out for rescue. I need you, Lord Jesus, to save me from my sin, my failure, my addictions, my lusts, my greed, my struggles, my sin, my selfishness, my lack of generosity, my jealousy, my pride. I can't change. That's the starting point. But I know you can change me. I don't have the will to do it, but your spirit can enable me. I have the desire, but I haven't got the willpower. I need your help. So come and do in me, by your spirit, what I cannot do for myself. That's the posture of Christian living. And I want to say to you, Paul was a spiritual giant, wasn't he? But he felt, dis- he felt divided. He felt despair. And he too needed deliverance. Do you know deliverance? Do you want deliverance? Paul says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The grace that saved you is the grace that will keep you safe in your struggle with sin. The grace that has saved you is the grace that will enable you to fight sin in life. And the grace that saved you is the grace that will safely lead you home. Let me just highlight a few points of application this uh, morning. Have a look with me uh, under our conclusion. Three points. First one is, our struggle with sin feeds the life of faith in Jesus. Um, the, the Christian life is ongoing trust in the Lord Jesus, dependence on Him. Not just for your salvation, but for your ongoing growth, your sanctification in life. And to have faith is to look outside yourself, not inside yourself. Right? If you look within to overcome your sin, you will fail. Paul shows us that even when we desire to do what is good, we don't have the power or capacity to do it because of indwelling sin. Our natures are broken. It's meant to force us to flee to Jesus for help, not just for our justification in life, but also for the fruit, for the fruit of obedience and righteousness and goodness in the Christian life. There is no fruitfulness in the Christian life apart from God's grace to you in Jesus, His Spirit enabling you to do it. I mean, Jesus said to his disciples, right? John chapter 15, verse 4 to 5. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot do anything, he says, apart from me. Zilch, zero, nada, nothing. Just as you cannot save yourself from judgment, you cannot save yourself from ongoing sin without Jesus by his enabling spirit making it possible in your life. And so your struggle with sin should fuel and feed the life of faith and trust in Jesus to seek Him and His help more and more. That's number one. Number two, our struggle with sin feeds and fuels the life of hope. It's a reminder to us in the Christian life that we haven't arrived, right? right? We might be joined with Jesus in His death and resurrection. We have His beauty, His obedience, His morality. He's taken all our sins on Himself and died in our place. He's judged and condemned in our place. Right, that's good news. We've been raised to new life with new desires for obedience, new pursuits, but we struggle with sin. And it's a reminder to us each day we have not arrived. The body is weak, it's fallen, it's prone to sin, and it's meant to drive us to long for resurrection, for the day when there will no longer be a struggle with sin. Okay? 
And so the Christian life is lived in, is in, in an ever-present struggle with sin and is meant to fuel the life of hope. It's meant to drive us to long for the day, to remind ourselves that though we are fallen, the best is yet to come because of Jesus. There will be a day when your struggle with sin will end. Long for it. Look forward to it. Let that hope encourage you. Thirdly, our struggle with sin feeds and fuels the life of love. Here's a big one, right? If you've understood your struggle with sin rightly, it will fuel your love for the people around you. Let your struggle with sin humble you. Christian people are people who know they're not good and they need saving. Christian people are people who know they, who, who actually struggle with sin in life. Christian people are people who know they're not perfect. They, they are work in progress. And that should humble us. You know, when you look into the mirror each morning, remind yourself that you are as helpless and powerless and ugly as the weakest and most sinful people you ever know and you will ever meet in your life. You need saving and so do they. You can only truly love people when you find yourself in the mud pit with them. And so, you know, when you're struggling with people who are difficult, who have failed morally and spiritually, who are godless, who may even have sin against you, you can only truly love them when you see that you are as helpless and powerless and ugly as they are. Our struggle with sin should humble us and fuel our love for those who have failed us, who aren't good, who may even have sinned against us. Because we're just as fallen, broken, ugly, and weak as they are. You see, if you're really a Christian, there is no room for pride in your life. The dominant posture of the Christian life is humility and unconditional love. Because you've understood who you are and what God has done for you in the Lord Jesus. Paul says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And, what, and who makes deliverance possible for them? God also makes deliverance possible for them as well through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our struggle with sin should really fuel, should really fuel our love for those around us. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we do thank you that you reveal and you speak uh, to us in and through your word. We thank you for the Roman series that has carried us for the last few months, uh, where we have slowly began to encounter who you are and your grace uh, in light of what we are like in our brokenness and our sinfulness. And so we do pray that you might continue to show us the depths of our sin so that more and more we might actually rejoice and revel and celebrate your grace in our lives. Help us see more and more of who we are so that we might actually see all the more uh, the wonderful nature of your grace, that our sins, though they are many, your mercy and your grace is always more. And so we give you thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen.